Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Let's pull out our Bibles. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes and get depressed again. For those of you who are new to our Ecclesiastes party, this is a depressing book. I said at the beginning that it starts with a downbeat and then the bottom falls out from there, and that is certainly true. The opening lines go like this, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. We understand the preacher to be Solomon, and this is Solomon late in life, Solomon who's drifted away from those early things of faith, Solomon that's... Uh, despairing and looking at the world from the perspective of a natural man. It says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word means meaningless. He uses that word 50 times in the 43 verses of Ecclesiastes. And his conclusion really comes from the context. His context is uh, found in verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Under the sun becomes a metaphor for life on the planet or a life trying to be lived without any understanding of God or a spiritual element or anything like that. And it becomes extremely depressing. You're like, well, then why are we studying it? And here's the reason. I don't know of another book in the Bible that has a better description of the postmodern mind than Ecclesiastes. If you want to know where we are as a people and what the prevailing worldview is, read Ecclesiastes. Because just like Solomon, our world is trying to construct meaning and significance and value from a worldview that's devoid of any concept of God. And all they keep coming back around to is it doesn't seem to have any meaning, just like Solomon did. And so the mantra of the modern age becomes life's a drag and then you die. And that's really how people are playing it out. And that emptiness seems to be showing up everywhere. He's trying to find the answer, why am I here? What's my purpose? What's my significance? What brings meaning to life? And he's coming up empty, just like our generation. So in the first five chapters of this book, we follow Solomon down that rabbit hole of all the various ways that people try to construct meaning and purpose. Uh, You know, it starts with, of course, women, and he he tries to pleasure, uh, find pleasure through all of that. And obviously there's wealth involved and massive riches and materialism. And he even goes into drugs and says he tested his mind with all kinds of, you know, drugs and drinking and all of that. And Uh, And then he moved to intellectualism and academia and filled his mind with wisdom. And and he tried all these various things and nothing seemed to help. Nothing seemed to give him any sort of significance or purpose. And now we arrive at chapter 6 and Solomon introduces us to what I call a common evil. Chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, if you're having a hard time finding it, open your Bible, you'll hit Proverbs or Psalms, go right, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. If you hit Song of Solomon, go back to the left, you'll find it in a minute. Give you about 30 minutes, okay? If you're looking, you'll find it by the time I'm done. So we give you the verses, all right? Chapter 6, verse 1, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun and is prevalent among men, and that word evil 
is the word raw in the Hebrew language. It's sort of the generic catch-all word for evil, anything bad. There is a particular evil. And in this, he seems to be referring once again to something he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 13. So if you skip back a few verses, he says, there is a grievous evil. He adds the modifier to that, a grievous evil. In that case, that word grievous had to do with illness or sickness. There is a dark sickness. And in 5.13, he says that sickness is riches being hoarded uh, by their owner to his hurt. And so this is a similar kind of darkness that we're talking about. And, and again, it's under the sun. There is an evil which I've seen common among men, which is under the sun. Uh, again, the metaphor is life without God. So what is this great evil? Well, in verse 2, he explains it. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all he desires. So this is a guy who's basically, he, he's gotten what he wanted. Yet... And that's the key. God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner enjoys them, this is vanity and a severe affliction. And so the great evil is when you have everything you've ever wanted, but it's not enough. You can't enjoy it. And the minute I read this, my mind immediately went to that movie, Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, the first one, the, the Black Pearl or whatever it was called. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, don't listen to what I'm about to say. Of course, it's like a 20-year-old movie, so if you're going to see it, you've probably already seen it. And if you haven't, then, well, I get to tell it anyway. So here's the story. Jack Sparrow, the captain of the Black Pearl, has been marooned by his crew, something he did apparently. They kicked him off the ship. It worked out in his favor because while he was off the ship, the pirates went and stole some Aztec treasure. Am I good so far? And this Aztec treasure had a curse on it. And the curse of the Aztec treasure was that you will live forever and you can plunder and pillage and rob and steal and do whatever you want. And you can amass great fortunes and you can never be defeated in battle, but you can never enjoy anything. Isn't that interesting? I mean, when I read Ecclesiastes 6, I thought, this is right out of the black pearl, or the black pearl's right out of Ecclesiastes 6. There's this, there's this beautiful scene where Barbosa, the, the pirate captain, is sitting watching the girl eat, and he's wishing that he could enjoy the pleasure of that. But they're so dead inside, and that's the curse. It's interesting that that death that's inside of them shows up when they appear in the moonlight, and they actually turn into skeletal uh, beings. And all of that metaphorical language to me really epitomizes Ecclesiastes chapter 6. You can have it all, wealth, eternal life, everything, but you can never enjoy it. And this darkness isn't so much never getting what you want. That's always what I thought hell was. I thought hell was not getting what you wanted. But it seems to me that there's another kind of hell, and that's getting everything you want but not being able to enjoy what you have. You know anybody like that? I mean, how many imploding celebrities have we watched down through the ages? They had everything in the world, but they couldn't enjoy any of it. I distinctly remember this, the end of this guy named Howard Hughes back 
from my childhood and early adolescence. There was a guy named Howard Hughes, one of the richest men in the world, had like two and a half billion dollars at his death. But for the last 15 years of his life, he went from dark, cold hotel room to dark, cold hotel room, never came out, couldn't see the light of day, couldn't be with people. His fingernails grew long and twisted. He never bathed. He had this long, scraggly beard and all this long hair. And I thought, how sad is that? I read the story of Rockefeller, who was the wealthiest man, American, to ever live. His wealth far exceeded the wealth of Bezos and those guys today in comparison to the, to the uh, gross domestic product of America. But uh, at the end of his life, his digestive system was so demolished by the stress and the anxiety that he lived with throughout his life, he could barely eat anything, just a little bit of, of eggs, a little few peas, stuff like that. And I thought, how sad would it be to have the access to all the wealth of all the world and you can't enjoy any of it? And yet we see it all the time. I mean, the list goes on. Michael Jackson. Um, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis. What about Kurt Corbain, Jim Morrison, Heath Ledger? I mean, how many do we have to see? You get the point. They had so much, but they seemed so empty. You say, well, that's the super rich and famous. That's really not me. Wait a minute. Let's back up and look at verse 2 again. Notice it says, it is prevalent among men. And that word prevalent means widespread. This isn't just something that afflicts the super rich or the celebrities. This is something that's prevalent among all men. And that word among, it's, it's really, that's a rare translation for that word. Normally it's upon. It's prevalent upon men. And you understand, not masculine men, but mankind. This is a, a sickness. This is an evil. This is a curse that is prevalent, it's common among all people, including us. So that no matter how much we have, no matter how long we live, if we can't enjoy it, then it's meaningless. It's an evil we all experience. Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children... <laughs> I read that, you know, in the Hebrew mind, that was a blessing. In my mind, that's a nightmare. Father, a hundred children. But they understood the blessing to be children. Remember when God wanted to bless Abraham, he blessed him. He said, your children will be like the sands of the sea and like the stars of the universe. That was the blessing. Uh, in fact, Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. They were a symbol of prosperity. Now, to me, they're more of a liability. I love them. Wouldn't do without them, but they're not going to bring money into your house. I can promise you. And that never changes. But in their day, they were a sign of prosperity. So what he's saying is, you could translate it, no matter how prosperous you become. And then he adds to that, and lives many years. Again, he saw long life as the blessing of God. But if you can't enjoy it, then what's the point? I mean, we're back to the Pirates of the Caribbean stuff. Watch this. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, now watch, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial. And again, that was a part of the curse. If you lived a sorry life, one of the curses was your body would just be left unburied and it'd be eaten by the dogs. That's what... That's what he's saying. So he doesn't even get a proper burial. Then I say, Bet, now watch this. This is dark stuff. Better the miscarriage than he. It's vulgar language, and it's meant to bite. 
If you have it all and live forever but can't enjoy it, it's better to have never been born. And he won't let this go, man. He starts to squat on this idea, and he, he begins to really drill down on it. It's like a rant of despair. I can almost hear his voice rising. Verse 4, for it comes in futility, and it goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It's, it's better off than he. An unborn child that dies in the womb. I mean, this is dark. It's better off than the person who lives all kinds of years and has all kinds of stuff, but can't understand the pleasure of it or enjoy any of it. You talk about an evil. And I'll tell you, most writers think that at this moment when Solomon's writing, this is autobiographical. This old man's looking in the mirror and he's looking at his life, and he looks at everything that he's had in his life, and he looks at the misery and despair that comes with it, and, and he's filled with that. And they're dark, but they're really filled with truth. If you live your whole life for yourself, and you never find time to enjoy what God's put on this beautiful planet, then it would have been better if you'd never been born. Verse 6, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice, does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. And I read that and I went, I'll go to one place. Seriously? I mean, Solomon, you know better than this. You, you wrote better than this. But I guess if we're talking about the fact that we all die and we're all going to meet at the grave, then yeah, I guess we all do go to the same place. But the grave's not my destination. And the Bible's very clear that everybody that goes to the grave doesn't end up in the same place. So why would Solomon say this? He said it because that's what you say when you don't have hope. I mean, without God, all you have are a few heartbeats and a long sleep. That's all you've got. That's all our world's got. Life's a drag and then you die. And so if you can't enjoy your life, then why live? That's what, that's what he's saying here. It's better that you wouldn't have even known how miserable you are. Verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. I, I like this in the New Living. It says, all people spend their lives scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. And there's a clue here that our problem with contentment is not a supply-side problem. That's what he's saying. This isn't a supply side problem because we live with this idea that if I just had a little more, then I'd have enough. And if I had enough, then I could be content. That's what we think. But Solomon had everything. And Solomon says, everybody's spending their whole life trying to scratch out some satisfaction for their hunger. When the idea is you can never satisfy hunger. Yet feeding craving does not satisfy the craving. It never will. All, all a craving does when it's fed is grow. Now, I mean, look at our world today. We'll, we'll embrace any sort of craving and we'll say, hey, if, if that's what you want to do with your life, you go do it. But nobody ever seems to ever get full. And that's exactly what he's talking about. Verse 8, for what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Now, he does give us a, a quick glance uh, at, at something valuable. He said, what the eye sees is better than the soul desires, and that's true. What you have in your hand is better than what you, you crave for in your heart. Uh, this, too, is futility and striving after the wind, though, he says, and 
you know, enjoy what you have instead of what you don't have. Stop looking ahead. I get it all. Celebrate all the little stuff, but keep reading. That's just a thin slice of advice. You see, I'm reading this thing and I'm looking for hope, you know. I'm like, I got to stand up Sunday morning and preach Ecclesiastes 6, God. Give me some hope here. So I want to hang on to verse 9. Ah, there it is. There's something. But watch him. He moves right on into fatalism. Verse 10, whatever exists has already been named. It's known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. That's fatalism. Can't change anything. Verse 11, for there are many words which increase futility. A lot of ideas, a lot of philosophy, a lot of words. What then is the advantage to man? More words don't fix it after a while. Words just seem to pile up. And so here's the conclusion, verse 12, for who knows what's good? I'm like, Solomon, who knows what's good for a man during his lifetime? Solomon, you used to know what was good for a man during his lifetime. During the few years of his futile life, he'll spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? And I read that and I go, wow, man, that's hopeful. Thank you, Solomon, for that brilliant word. And I got to tell you, I, I wrestled with this. That's why you don't have any notes today. You know why you don't have any notes today? Because I finished this yesterday afternoon, and I wrestled with it. I, we don't have anybody to print the notes. I'm like... I'm looking for something in Ecclesiastes 6, and I thought, well, maybe we can learn from his negative example. Maybe his life is a cautionary tale. That's certainly true. And maybe we can say, well, this is what he says, but this isn't what's true. And I kept looking and hoping for an answer to this evil, but Solomon doesn't give an answer. Here's what he does. He hits us with this truck. He runs over our body, and he leaves us broken and bruised and waves back at us and says, have a nice day. Kind of like mayhem in the commercial, you know. He just wrecks our world. He says, life's a drag, then you die. Good luck finding any meaning in anything. See you later. Have a nice life. Let me tell you what's wrong with you, he says. Bam. Here comes the truck. Good luck fixing it. Bam. You're on your own. Bam. Life's a drag, and then you die. You're welcome. Have a nice day. And here's what I realized. Here's the answer. He doesn't have an answer. I mean, now look at this. I go, where's the answer, God? Why doesn't he give an answer? He doesn't give an answer because lost, postmodern, agnostic, cynical nihilism has no answer for despair and hopelessness. Postmodernism and nihilism that we live with today has no answer for its own hopelessness. Now, don't get me wrong. Those guys are really good at explaining the pain. And here's something interesting I've come to learn about people. People don't really want, a lot of people don't really want to get better. They just want to be understood. There's an interesting moment in, in I think it's the Gospel of John. I think it's chapter 5, maybe. Uh, Jesus runs into this fella who's been sick for like 38 years. You remember that one? Guy's been sick. It says he's been sick for 38 years. I think, I think it's 38. Check me on it. And uh, he walks up to the guy and he says, do you wish to get well? And I've always thought that was a weird question. Why would you ask somebody who's been sick 38 years, do you wish to get well? Because you think he's going to say, obviously. 
But I think Jesus asked that question because in truth, a lot of people don't want to get well, especially when you're dealing with the postmodern mind. The postmodern mind doesn't want to get better. It just wants to be understood. And so they accrue for themselves teachers. You see, if they get better, they have to admit, number one, that their system is broken and it doesn't work. They can't admit that because number two, it seems to be smart and they can't admit that they're not smart. And so it's all about feeling smart and I want to be smart and I want my colleagues in academia to embrace my ideas. And so rather than talking about how we're going to get better, all they talk about is how bad they feel and why we feel bad like this. Exactly Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And so I'll marinate in my despair, but I, I need you to soak in this evil with me. Don't try to fix me, just to understand me. I'm in so much pain. I do a uh, lady come to me after the service. She said she was a, uh, an assistant surgeon in a psych ward, and she said uh, that most of the people they dealt with didn't want to get better. I said, well, thank you. That confirms what I said. Don't try to fix me. Just understand me. And I think that's why they love the teachers of the past, like Nietzsche and Freud and Sartre and Rousseau and those guys. Those guys didn't have any answers. They were just really, really good at understanding the pain. And most of those guys, quite honestly, well, all of them lived really horrible lives. I mean, you, you look at Freud, look at the end of Freud's life. Look at the, the composite of his teaching, his life, his worldview, his values. He died a very, very sad death. Nietzsche died in a mental institution. Rousseau had fathered children all over the place and lived this out-of-control life. It's just interesting to me that the models that we have picked up, dredged up from history, and have now embraced in, in our postmodern worldview are, are broken models. But these guys were all really good at describing the pain. But they never had an answer. And neither did Solomon. Why not? Because he was explaining life under the sun. So I'm wrestling with this and I'm like, man, I got, we got to have an answer. We can't just talk about the pain of postmodernism. Let's have an answer. And I think I heard the Spirit say, Bill, the answer's not in Ecclesiastes 6. Ecclesiastes 6 defines the problem. The answer is in the rest of my book. And all of a sudden, I was reminded that I'm not confined to Ecclesiastes 6 to look for an answer. He said, the answer's in my word. And when I pick that word up and I start reading it, you know what I see? I see, rather than the hopelessness, I see hope everywhere. And rather than the discontent and the malcontent, I find contentment everywhere. You just see it all over those pages. Ecclesiastes 6 is good at defining the problem, but the New Testament defines the answer. And here's how to find your way out of the despair. Learn contentment. And so as I began to explore some of the ideas of contentment that I, that I know in my heart and see in the New Testament, I came up with, with two things. First is the part we're responsible for. There's really two parts to contentment. There's the part I'm responsible for. Look at 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In other words, contentment becomes the part that you bring to the table. That's, that's part of our responsibility. You feel the implication? In fact, Paul goes even beyond that in Philippians 4. He said, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content. There it is, in whatever circumstances I am. 
I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. And clearly we depend on the transforming power of the Spirit to overcome discontent, but at the same time, we play a part in it. We must decide to be content. You have to choose it. It's a part of the choice you make. And rather than always ranting and focusing on what's wrong, I have to learn to be grateful for what's right. Here's some starters. Let me give you a quick one. You'll have to write these down. First, stop looking ahead. One of, the, one of the hard things about successful people is delayed gratification, and they can spend their whole lives looking ahead. You have to stop looking ahead. You have to become more part of the moment. Second, stop blaming. Somebody else is not responsible for your problem. Third, stop comparing. Stop complaining, stop comparing. You know what happens when I compare? One of two things happen. Either I become proud because I think I'm better than you, or I become defeated because I, you, I think you're better than me. You see? And eventually, if I compare myself to everybody, eventually everybody's going to be better than me in something. And so I can even get mad at God. I can say, hey, you know, God, you blessed him. Why didn't you bless me the way you blessed him? Stop complaining. I mean, stop complicating. Simplify. First uh, Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and covering, with these we'll be content. And then stop controlling. I think this is the key to it. You have to surrender. You have to just stop. And you know, what's the Bible say? Be still and know that I am God. And then there's the part that Jesus does. That's the part we do. Here's the part Jesus does. Jesus doesn't have the answer to your discontent. He is the answer. Did you hear me? He doesn't have the answer for, for postmodernism. He is the answer. He said to the people, he'd fed them with five loaves and, five, and two fish. And the next day he comes back and he said, I'm the bread of life, which comes down out of heaven. You eat me, you'll never hunger again. These were hungry people. He ran into a woman at a well who'd been married five times and the guy she was living with was not her husband. That's a hungry woman. And he said, if you knew who I was and the water I have, I have living water. You drink it, you'll never thirst again. And there's such a powerful truth to that. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. It comes back around to surrender. That we reach a point in our life and we say, God, you be my contentment. Free me from this curse. Free me from this evil. Wednesday night we did lift and uh, the White family spoke. And this is a, this is a family of, of high achievers. I mean, they're good at everything. Uh, they're good at business. They're super smart. I mean, the daughter graduated summa cum laude in architecture. I graduated thank you laude. <laughs> I can't even spell summa cum laude. <laughs> they're smart. They're athletic. I hate them. <laughs> no, I really love them. But you know, in all of that, there were some fissures and cracks going on in their life, and I love the transparency of this family. They talked about, Brent said, we were the perfect Christmas card family. And he was a deacon, member of the church, here every time the doors are open. But there were some cracks, you know. And as he was talking, as, you know, I've got, I've got Ecclesiastes 6 on my brain. And he's talking, I'm like, they're in danger of becoming an Ecclesiastes 6 family. 
a postmodern family, successful in every way, but not content. And uh, then God said, you know, this is a good family, but I want this to be a godly family. And so the refiner's fire came into their life and Cheryl got leukemia. And it was almost like all the breaks were, were put on. One of the things the White family, every one of them as they talked, they said, we were, I, I had everything in control, I was in control, I was in control, then I wasn't in control. It was so good, y'all. You go back and watch it. And uh, they worked through Cheryl's sickness. Brent has to get out of the business, turn it over to someone else. Priorities change. He's focused on getting his wife well. They go into all the chemo and all that stuff, and she gets cured, and she's healed. But no sooner does she get healed than, than Ashley gets sick. And she gets this weird sickness where it affects her blood pressure, and she'll just pass out. Or she'll just collapse. She has no energy, whatever. She becomes, I mean, it's affecting her senior year. She has to pull out of sports, pull out of everything. And she said when she was given the testimony, at the time, I didn't know if this was going to be the rest of my life. It's, it's an incurable thing that she's got, but she had to learn how to manage it. And I remember praying for her, and I remember thinking, I hope this isn't her whole life. And through that process, she talks about how I had to give up control and God began to take control of my life and she got better and she's functioning. She graduated from tech with summa cum laude. She just got engaged and so that's doing great. You know, the boys are athletic. Uh, Barham was in his senior year. He was looking to play college baseball, breaks his leg, sits on the bench his whole senior year, you know, dealing with all that. But Barham talks about how that uh, rearranged his priorities. And I think Barham really played a key role in the transformation of his family because he started reaching his friends. And Barham, like, led a revival at OCS, you know. The kids are getting baptized, and it's really kind of a cool story. Then Brent comes up, and, you know, Brent's a high achiever. And he begins to talk about his life. You know, one of the things that, that uh, Barham said was, he said, I had everything that should make you happy, but I wasn't happy. Um, and then Brent starts to talk. And you know what Brent said? He was talking about his business was booming, his bank account was getting bigger, he was thriving. But he said, you know, he was becoming a shadow in his family like some men can be. And he was intolerant and quick to snap and difficult to deal with. And his priorities were changing. And he said this, and I wrote this down, I know what I was chasing, contentment. Isn't that interesting? And then through all of this pain and fire, he looked up and through all that heartache, he was out of control. God allowed himself to shatter that carefully crafted world and Brent finally cried out in faith. And here's what, here's what Brent said. It wasn't a deal. I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me. I didn't cut a deal. I surrendered my life. The weight of the world is off my shoulders, and man, it feels good. And I've seen a change in Brent. I mean, he's always been a good guy. I've always admired him and respected him, but it's different now. And he feels, I don't know, he just feels at peace, more content with himself. And so that's the story. You can stay on this path of postmodernism, that's where most of the people in your world are. They're trying to construct meaning and value in a world without God, and it's impossible for it to happen. And so they have plenty of questions, but they don't have an answer. Or you can follow Jesus. 
He, he doesn't have an answer. He is the answer. And when Christ becomes central in your life, contentment becomes a natural byproduct of that. So you don't have to pursue contentment. You walk contented. It's really your choice. So I guess the last question I would ask you is, do you really want to get well? Do you want to get well? Some people don't. You may not want to. But for those of you who want to get well, Jesus wants to make you whole. Now let me say this. The application of this is for people who already know Jesus. Brent knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus. But Jesus wasn't central. He was peripheral. And when we make Jesus peripheral, we walk as if He didn't exist, and we experience the same pathologies as if we didn't believe. So you may have been here a, a hundred years, ten years, twenty years, but if Christ isn't central, then all of the effects of postmodernity are a part of your life. I promise they are. You know they are. So make Him central. But the second application is for those of you who don't know Jesus. And you're, man, you're right in that world. And the world's telling you, do whatever you want, just as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, you just do your deal. But you know there's an emptiness that keeps going along with that because that emptiness is inside of you. And more stuff and more experiences isn't going to solve that. Do you want to get well? That's the question I have for you. Do you want to get well? Then cry out to Jesus right now in this place. Would you pray with me? I want to I I lead a prayer for those of you who know Christ but he's not central. Father, we yield ourselves to you. Forgive us for forgetting who you are. We commit to you that you will become the main thing. And Father, that you will fill our world with meaning, purpose, and significance. And we will walk in contentment. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And for those of you without Christ, it's a simple prayer. God, I'm living Ecclesiastes 6. My life is marked by the same despair. I may have the world, but I'm still feeling empty. Come into my life, change me. All I got, I give to you right now. I'm yours. Father, we thank you that you hear the prayers. We thank that you inhabit the praises of your people and that you're in this room right now, and that your Holy Spirit wants to do a work among us right now. And so heal us. Father, I pray you would heal those who need faith in Christ right now. Give them the faith to follow you. Father, help them to want to be well and to become well. Father, I pray for those who have known the healing power of transformation through the Spirit, but like Solomon, we drift. And we can even begin to model and, and, and mimic the world around us. And we, we walk in the same despair. Father, we give all that to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.